The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Really good to be with everyone this morning. I mentioned a little earlier for those who joined a little late that we have uh, I'm back in the meditation hall here at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis. I think the first time on Sunday morning in a long, long time, so nice to be in the room practicing with people. And that's also an invitation for people who live in the area to join in here on Sunday morning or Sunday evening. Uh, we do a program that doesn't have any uh, Zoom to it. It's basically the same as Sunday morning, so you're welcome to come for that as well. And some of you might remember in the before times, around the solstice and equinoxes, we would do the refuges and precepts. And so I want to talk a little bit about this reflection that people who uh, find value in the Buddhist teachings have been doing for 2,500 years. And uh, our job is to make it our own. You know, you may not do it in the formal way that we do it here at the center, but one way or another, it is relevant for us to reflect, well, what is a refuge for me? What am I willing to place my heart on or submit to? And that's not just a one-time reflection, it's an ongoing reflection, like what am, what am I willing to place my heart upon? What do I find trustworthy in my life? What do I deeply value? And I uh, remember um, it's been, the simile has been around for a long, long time, but sort of a somewhat funny, but also very accurate description of what we do as human beings. You know, we're trapped, even oppressed by our habit energies. And it's like, the image goes, it's like being in a prison cell, constantly rearranging the furniture getting a little refreshment, you know, when we try a different way of putting the chair here, putting this thing over there. Oh yeah, this is so much nicer, fresh. But, but always or forever maybe missing the fact that we're still in prison, trapped. And this is like our attempts, like within the basic structures of our habits, our habit energies, the basic structure of how I frame things, how I perceive and make up meaning, I keep doing different versions of the same thing. And uh, we want to recognize how bound we are in some of our habits or all of our habits so that this spiritual urgency begins to deepen or develop in our heart. Like, is there another way? What do we do with this human life that's more than what I'm currently doing? Looking for a good TV show or, you know, a fun restaurant to go to or the Buddha talks about sort of the normal way is in terms of these floods. Asawa is the Pali word. And uh, I mentioned sometimes floods 
You know, at the time of the Buddha, he taught mostly around the Ganges River in that part of northern India. And so the, the big natural disaster was floods. And so he used that, he built that, because that was the thing. You know, here in Minnesota, it might be tornadoes or floods too, but, but there for sure. And, you know, of course, there was no warning system. So if it rained upriver, you know, all of a sudden, in a matter of minutes, the river would sweep away the village. Because, you know, who would know that this is, the river would rise. And uh, so he used that term to describe these tendencies of our mind to be swept away by some sense craving. You know, if only I have chocolate, or if only I could get my body comfortable. If only we could renovate this room, you know. It needs a new painting. We had a half-day retreat yesterday, and I was noticing ants crawling on the floor. And I was going, oh, this room needs a big cleaning, <laughs> a deeper dive, right? So it's, it's, this is sense craving. And notice, like today and for the rest of our lives, notice how easy it is to be swept away by if only... I get rid of or get, then I'll be at ease. If only. If only it was a little cooler today. If only the humidity was different today. If only I got myself back into shape. You know, if only something happened in the political life of the United States, then, then it would be great. And the, the thing is, it's not like bad having any of these ideas around sense experience. You know, knowing what we like and dislike, there's nothing toxic in having preferences. The toxicity, the suffering comes when there's this unquestioned belief, if only, then I'll be happy. Because the truth of sense experience is that it's, they're always limited whatever nice scenario we imagine, like when we get rid of something, how nice it will be, or when we get something, how nice it will be. You know, truthfully, we've gotten rid of a lot of the things we've wanted to get rid of, and we've gotten things we've wanted to get, and yet we're still rearranging furniture in the prison cell. We're still caught in that flood of sensual craving. So that's one of the floods. The other flood, generally, we call becoming, that becoming energy, which is we imagine being somebody in the future, and then that will be good. So it's related to sensual craving, but it's really more about like who I'm going to become. And there's always some sense of me down the road. And sometimes the me down the road scares us, though I don't want to become that one, that person. This is who I want to become. But again, it's like this false hope that there's always going to be a me down the road that will make all of this right now okay. And we call that becoming. And that could sweep us away. We can be totally self-absorbed in our becoming energies. Like, I'm going to become a Buddhist, not a Buddhist meditator, a good Buddhist meditator, maybe one of the best Buddhist meditators. I don't know if you know about Richie Davidson. He's 
over the last couple of decades has, has become pretty famous. He is a professor at UW-Madison. And he started the Center for, I think it's the Center for Healthy Minds, um, which is uh, associated with uh, the University of Wisconsin at Madison. It's a really big center. They've done really fantastic research. A lot of the newer neuroscience uh, discoveries have come from Madison, UW-Madison, and with MRIs. And one of the things they've done is they've done MRIs of very experienced meditators, meditating in the MRI, and noticing, like, what does that brain look like, as opposed to ordinary folks getting in the MRI. And so, you know, we could, like, I want to be one of those great meditators who, when they put me in the MRI, the neuroscientists go, whoa, you're special. Your brain's not like anybody else's brain. Because then we become somebody we want to become. Special, right? And there's some juice when we're special, when we get the award, the blue ribbon, or the acknowledgement from our sweetheart, or whatever it might be. Um, just like there's sort of a, uh, when we don't get the acknowledgement. But of course, that's an endless rearranging of furniture too, because truthfully, we have become the person, like a long time ago, we wanted to become an adult, okay? Most of you look like adults. I'm assuming that's true for those of you online. And uh, so did it fix things for you? You know, make it all right? No. no. And now we want to become retired, but with sufficient resources. <laughs> you know, or we want to become healthy, or we want to become single, or we want to have a partner, or we, you know, become the one who has a partner. It's endless. So there's the flood of sensual craving, like, the mind getting absorbed. If I have this sense experience, then I'll be set. The flood of becoming somebody. And then there's just the flood of wrong views, fixed views, self-centered dramas. So some kind of a story about the world, the war in Ukraine, for example, and that could flood my mind. And I notice this, like when I'm sitting, like different scenarios, different points of view, right? And that self-righteousness about like, this is how my mind is defining the situation and then it identifies with the story it's told itself. Could be something global, could be something specific in our life. But we like our opinions, we like our problem, the way we've solved a problem, the way we've defined a situation. Isn't it true that we can get absorbed, we can be swept away in those imaginings, those fixed views, those fixed opinions, those self-centered dramas, right? That's another flood. And then there's the more generic flood that sometimes is included in this list and sometimes not. So those are the three basic floods of sensual craving, wanting to become, continually become somebody, and the floods of our, you know, the ideas that we get fixed on, attached to, identified with. And then there's the more general flood of ignorance, and the flood of being disconnected, or not actually aligned with the way it is. 
So it's the flood of delusion. You know, in denial, disconnected, in our own fabrications, in our own constructions. And that really includes the first three floods. It's kind of the general category. Like when we're not awake, when we're not present, then the only other alternative is being in a flood of one kind or another, right? Like ask ourselves, as soon as we have some intuition of what it means to be fully present, then we finally have some clarity of what it is to be swept away in delusion, like to be not present. To be not present means the mind is being swept along or absorbed or lost, caught up in some kind of drama, whether it's a drama around sensual craving, oh yeah, want to go home, I'm going to have one of those impossible burgers, you know, where they use coconut oil, I think, to mimic animal fat. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's had those, but for those of us who are vegetarians, you know, it's sort of like, oh yeah, and then, you know, pickles, and we can get swept away. I can look like a meditator, but the mind is actually swept away with sensual craving. How nice it will be. You know, and we'll just keep doing little riffs, little potato chips next to that, or whatever it is. It could be like going to the lake, or um, playing with a friend, or whatever it might be, that the mind imagining some sense experience and delighting in it. And you know, when we imagine a nice sense experience, it's, it has a little bit of a sense of the actual experience. Our mind is simple enough that we can't completely tell the difference between imagining eating that fake hamburger and actually eating it. You know, like we start to salivate. Maybe some of you right now. I just swallowed. <laughs> so that's the thing about there's some reward to getting caught in sensual craving. There's some reward in imagining becoming the person we want to become. There's some reward and the self-righteousness as I get absorbed in my opinions about this and that. Isn't that true? Why else would the mind continually be involved with these floods? So there is some superficial payback. And the spiritual urgency is when we see the limitations of these, really, their addictions, these addictions to the floods. And then we're interested, then finally, in a way, we're interested in the refuge, the spiritual refuge, like, what is my alternative? Because I know if I don't do something, this will define my existence. I will, you know, simply be swept away by the next craving that I'm attracted to, or the next idea of becoming somebody, fixing myself, becoming the one I want to be, or the next obsession about some idea, some opinion, some fixed view about this or that. There's got to be another way. There's got to be something. And especially when we feel, we begin to sense how stressful it is, how burdensome it is to be constantly rearranging the furniture in prison. 
you know, and then all of a sudden the attention starts to go not to how nice this particular arrangement is, but I'm still in prison. My life, my heart is burdened, doesn't feel free. And either we'll complain about not being free, or we'll neurotically try to become free in a way that doesn't deliver, or we become humble. I don't know the way. I don't know what to do with this human existence. Anybody been to this place? Right? We want to learn to revisit this place actually often. This is sort of the beginning of taking refuge as a practice, not just as some Buddhist ritual, is to get to this place of spiritual, it's a kind of a blending of spiritual urgency with spiritual humility. Like, if I already knew, I would have been practicing in a way that delivered. But clearly, because I'm not uh, realizing that freedom that I am to it is possible. I need to be a student. I need to. I need this humility. This is a, a, a well-known little teaching from the Dalai Lama that I like a lot. It's one of the books, one of the many, many books of the Dalai Lama. I don't know if he actually writes his books, but somebody writes them. He trend, he says it, and then somebody turns it into a book. So this is a book that's just describing uh, some of the practices in Tibetan Buddhism. But taking refuge is one of those practices that's in all the different Buddhist lineages, all the way back to the time of the Buddha. And uh, the Dalai Lama writes here, once we take ourselves and the quality of our life seriously and acknowledge the difficulties we may be experiencing, the next step is to have confidence that one, it's possible to overcome them, right, these difficulties. Two, there's a way to accomplish this. And three, we are capable of achieving it. Taking refuge is not a passive act of placing ourselves in the hands of a higher power that will do everything for us, as the English word refuge might imply, right? One, one statement that some of our teachers have said so the Buddha's already done his work. Now it's our turn, right? Because somebody else woke up, had deep insight, learned how to be at ease with conditions, no matter the conditions, doesn't really fix our problem. It can be nice to be around people who have some deep wisdom, right? But we still have to do the work ourselves. And so he continues here, just repeat that last sentence. Taking refuge is not a passive act of placing ourselves in the hands of a higher power that will do everything for us. As the English word refuge might imply, it is an active process of putting a safe, reliable, and positive direction in our life. I like that. It's really pragmatic. Let me just read that again. It is an active process of putting a safe, reliable, and positive direction in our life. So here we are, right? We've got that habit of just wanting to rearrange the furniture, do the same thing we've done before, get some of the same results we've gotten before. 
I don't feel good, so I'm going to make a nice meal for myself. Now, remember, I'm not uh, pursuing sense experience, nice sense experience. There's nothing inherently wrong in that. Or wanting to become somebody who learns a foreign language, right? There's nothing wrong in these becoming energies. What's, what makes it unhelpful is thinking that getting the sense experience we want or becoming the person we want or thinking about like, what's the right description of what's going on in Ukraine. Like, let me get it right. I want the right opinion about this whole thing. Thinking that that's going to make me happy in any sort of lasting, deep sense. So it's okay to get in the car and go get a treat. What makes it a cause for suffering is thinking that that going to the co-op and getting your favorite treat is going to matter in any significant way. Do it if you want. Don't do it if you don't want. But it's not actually going to address the deeper existential uneasiness of our heart. Same with even bigger things. You know, some things are better distractions for the pain that we hold in our hearts than others, like, I'll fall in love. Well, you may fall in love, and it may help you forget that your heart has this more subtle, unaddressed uneasiness, because it's so busy having a partner, <laughs> you know, fills up a lot of space, or getting a dog, or any of the other things that we tend to do to address us, having kids, you know, changing jobs, moving. But all of that the Buddha would put in that category of re rearranging furniture in the prison cell. Doesn't mean that a little rearranging of the furniture might not help. It might help in the short term, like just refresh things a little bit. But it doesn't really take care of the deeper issue, because the deeper issue is a fundamental misalignment. And one way to talk about the misalignment is believing or identifying with these floods, like imagining that they actually deliver when they don't really deliver. So the spiritual refuge is initially that spiritual urgency mixed with this humility. You know what? All my habit energies to take one of those floods I have now some healthy suspicion. I'm not going to imagine I'm against them. It's part of being a human being to want nice sense experiences, to want to become somebody, to you know, have opinions about this and that. But I'm learning that that's not any kind of end in and of themselves. So I have a more space, more, uh, yeah, just not as tight around my things I like and who I want to be. You know, one of the things, I'm in 64 now, so I'm at that stage of life where it becomes more and more obvious that all those things that I thought I wanted to do, it's like, it's not going to happen. Not all of it, maybe, but a lot of those things. There's just no way I can become all the kinds of, you know, people, person that I wanted to become. And uh, it's sort of liberating to realize that, you know, as I understand awakening and freedom, 
It doesn't depend on me learning another language or traveling here or there or becoming a gardener or I've always wanted to learn a musical instrument in a way that would bring joy into my life or you know any of these other things that in and of themselves certainly wouldn't be unwholesome and might actually have some nice wholesomeness associated with them but happiness isn't a function of them and that's a really liberating realization I don't need to be somebody different in order to be free. I don't need a nicer home, nicer weather, nicer lunch, nicer bodily sensations to realize real freedom. I don't need to know the answer about what to do about politics in the United States in order to be free. Or even how to fix my relationship with another person. Freedom, the freedom that the Buddhist teachings point to, that is available to all of us, is what we call unconditioned. We're not, the Buddha suggests to us, don't be interested in freedom, ease, release, that is dependent on anything. Because then that release, that freedom, isn't real freedom because it's conditional. It's because everybody likes you that I feel so free. But what happens when they stop liking me? Then that freedom goes away. You know, people respect us. If we think that's the ticket, you see we're setting ourselves up for the time when they don't respect us. When they think we're wrong or bad. This happened to me a long time ago, but you know, people that, a couple of people that I really cared about um, had negative, as much as I could understand, had uh, negative ideas about me. You know, like, I'm not good or bad or something like that. And it was so shocking, I didn't realize how attached I was to people seeing me as being a good person. And it was really hard it took real spiritual work to realize that's not a refuge. You know, because we can try so hard to be, a, you know, whatever you would call that upstanding, you know, good, relatively good human being. It's still a good thing to do, I think. But what's not good is to be dependent on people seeing us that way. Because that's a setup. Still good to get healthy, but to be our happiness dependent on health is a setup for betrayal because it's going to change. No matter what we eat, no matter what, how we exercise, we're not in control of how our health unfolds, right? There's all these things in play that we do not control. So this really helps us get a, a deeper sense of refuge. What can we be in refuge, or what, we, what can we take refuge in? What the Buddha calls the sure heart's release. And so we have this clue that it's unconditioned. That means it's already available here and now. You see how it really sets up how we practice. Because you could, I could, 
spend a lot of our meditation career trying to look like a good meditator. You know, sitting really still, having that kind of serene facial expression, or whatever we think. You know, having exalted meditative experiences that we can tell our friends about. But then, you know, the, the sit's over, and uh, we're the same old, same old, you know, and get irritated by the mosquitoes, and controlling about this, and reactive to that. So what we say in, in our lineage, in our tradition, you know, the teachings of the Buddha, with the Buddha as our teacher, we say we take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. But hopefully you understand that taking refuge in the Buddha isn't going to help us because the Buddha's come and gone 2,500 years ago. So that person isn't helpful. Perhaps the teachings of the Buddha might be helpful, but what's really ultimately helpful are where those teachings point. And those teachings and practices that the Buddha laid out they point to something that's here and now. The Buddha, in a very compelling discourse, says, said something like, you know, basically, if it weren't here and now, I wouldn't tell you to practice. But because it is here and now, I'm really encouraging you to practice, opening to what's here and now, realizing, waking up, right? That's usually the word we use, waking up, this is a path of waking up to what's already here and now. But because of the very deep, pervasive habits of distractedness, delusions, superficiality, self-centered dramas, we can constantly be rearranging the furniture in prison and never realize what's being missed. Oh, there's something that's here and now. We're so obsessively, arrogantly confident that as soon as I rearrange the furniture, things are going to be okay, that we never use this sort of spiritual urgency like, I intuit that freedom, real freedom, the full release, the unshakable release is possible. I intuit it's here and now and I'm pretty sure I don't know what it is. Because, you know, thinking we know has been getting in the way for a long time. We're not really a student when we already think we know what peace or ease or release or freedom, spiritual awakening is. Because right? the idea we have is like projected out there and we're looking for something we think we know what it is. So it's no wonder we never find it, because the Buddha says this, no matter how we conceive it, it will always be other. And this is the interesting thing about how faith or confidence um, works in the Buddhist context. Like we're having confidence in something we don't know. <laughs> That's hard. <laughs> That's a, it's an ask. But we can have very direct confidence that rearranging the furniture in prison hasn't gotten me the release, the freedom, the ease, the non-fear 
that I sense is possible. Right? Do you have some of that intuition in your life? Like whatever we've been struggling to get, to have, not that we give it up. I mean, my partner and I, over these years, it used to be Common Ground for the first 15 years, our house. But you know, after Common Ground moved out and moved into this building in 2009, you know, we've been turning our little place into a really comfortable home. I really like the comfort of my home, you know, and it's paid for and it's simple and well insulated, and, you know, all those sort of things that we creatures, we animals like in our shelters, right? So, but I want to live so that if that were to disappear, my heart could handle it. It wouldn't, I wouldn't feel like my refuge was taken away, my house was taken away, but my happiness wasn't taken away, my ease, my freedom wasn't removed. I want to feel that way about my own death and the death of those I love. I am really at this point, 40 years into my Buddhist practice, I want, I'm, I really feel deeply that my refuge isn't dependent on anything. That's the refuge I'm interested in. So when we say, I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, it's being awake to an understanding, to an intimacy with the way it is that allows for this fearless participation, this non-dependent engagement with life. Because the refuge, the heart's intuiting and aligning with and opening to doesn't depend on anything. And you know, we say some words like, it's all about letting go, you know, and those are good words, but what's good about the words is the letting go, not the idea of letting go. We can use the idea of letting go just to beat ourselves up. Why aren't I letting go? I'm so attached, what's wrong with me? But there's, there is a way right now in any moment, any moment will do. We don't need a different moment where we can actually let go. Like a free fall. You can even sense it right now like whatever this moment is, whatever sensitivity there is, a non-grasping, a non-dependence. Nobody trying to get something from this moment. Nobody leaning into the future or holding on to what was past. This is how we begin to intuit the peace, the release, the freedom, the sh uh, one that uh, quote from the suttas, the discourse of the sure heart's release. And this is how we build that confidence always with a lot of humility, <coughs> always that the sense that I can't grasp the refuge with some idea, like we can grasp our opinion about politics or our opinion about a sports team or whatever, but 
you can't really grasp what the Buddhist practices, teachings are pointing to, okay, I got it. You can be pretty sure you don't got it when you think you got it. But we can intuit it. It kind of is a creeping insight. It creeps in, that spaciousness, that non-fear, that sense of ease, no matter the conditions. We're having a bad day, and that ease, that spaciousness is there. We're having a really good day, and that ease, that spaciousness is there, that non-dependence, that non-clinging, that non-heaviness is there. It creeps in the more we do the practice appropriately. That's our refuge. And then we also uh, take up these five trainings. We're really here to train the mind. And it really aligns with the steeper work I've been talking about today about refuge. We undertake the training. We get really curious. It's not about right or wrong. It's really about getting interested in non-harming. And it, we're never there. There's no way to be a human being, a living being, an animal on this planet and not cause harm. We have to eat. And I don't care if you're a vegan, you're causing harm. <laughs> There's no way to not cause harm consuming, walking, shopping. But we can deeply, we can cultivate that deep care, concern, sensitivity, moral sensitivity around non-harming. And we undertake the training to refrain from taking what hasn't been given to us. So we're always sensitive, like when we're receiving something, okay, Am I in any way manipulating, stealing, taking what I shouldn't be taking? We never get it right. Don't expect, like, okay, I'm clean here. We're never clean. We want to be sensitive because it challenges all of our attachments, the commitment to not killing, not harming, not taking what wasn't given, not causing harm in our sexual relationships. Like, am I using power in my sexual activities, am I manipulating, am I taking advantage in some way that's causing me or others harm? In our speech, undertaking the training not to speak mistruths, not to use harsh language, not to fill the space with idle speech, not to use my words as a weapon to hurt someone, and the last of these five mindfulness training is undertaking the training not to intoxicate the mind that makes me careless, more likely to cause harm. Because it's one thing to explore this refuge that's here and now, that's not conditioned. But these five trainings, which are all about our relational lives, they really make this deeper spiritual work grounded because we're really looking like because otherwise it could be well you know I've got my refuge so what does it matter how I shop whether I do this or whether I do that how I treat the people I'm interacting with but that's actually how we get some intuition about the depth the yeah just the process of awakening is in this in these relational worlds we inhabit, how we're showing up 
with our pet, with our partner, with our communities, with the problems of the world, how we're engaging the wider world. What does that valuing of not harming, not stealing, being a sexual being without creating reverberations of suffering, speaking without creating reverberations of suffering, you know, using the different substances, media, alcohol, drugs, whatever, without causing suffering. Not to become an addict to these intoxicating substances. So I encourage you, I pasted um, in the chat for everyone Sunday resources. And in there you'll find the Common Ground Refuge and Precept recitation. And I strongly encourage you to print that up. Um, it's on our website um, under resources for those who are in the room. It's also in our chant books here. Um, and I'll put it, I'll have uh, Robin our office manager put it in the weekly email. I'll make sure it gets in the weekly email. And I just encourage everybody to read through that, make it your own, and to find a time in the next week, do this more than once, where you you know, give yourself 15 minutes, take, it could be during a walk, and you're really reflecting, well, what is, what do I take refuge in? How might, for myself, translate that word Buddha, being awake, being intimate, Dhamma, the way it is, Sangha, that, that manifestation of that freedom, like what does freedom look like when I'm in relationship with other people? That's what Sangha really means. It doesn't mean spiritual community. It means action in the world, relation relating to the world that comes out of that intimacy of Buddha being awake to Dhamma, the way it is. That's what Sangha is. Those are our refuge. It's when the, that intimacy and that connection can be taken on the road into our relationships. What does it look like? Not just when we're sitting. We can be pretty serene and free from harming when we're sitting quietly in a beautiful space, but try to negotiate a business deal with someone or deal with a teenager or, you know all the things that human beings actually have to do. So nice to be together today, and I'll say goodbye to the online community. Nice to be with you this morning. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.